Good morning, everyone. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture text that we will be examining this morning is Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. This particular passage can be found on page 489 of the blue ESV Bibles. Those are located in the back pocket seat cover um, in the seats in front of you. And as always, please know that those Bibles are available for you to take home if you do not have one already. Once again, we'll be reading Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Thus says God's word. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would use this weak vessel to communicate the truth that is in your word that we read here, Lord. And by the hearing of your word, your people would be taught by you this morning. Father, I pray that our hearts would be soft and our minds would be open to hear your word, to be conformed to your word, to be encouraged and rebuked by your word, Lord. We thank you for your word, for it is a gracious gift to us. Use this time for your glory, that we will worship you by the sincere hearing of your word. Amen. All right, you may have a seat. So this morning, uh, we are continuing our series uh, through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, as uh, Pastor Mark, we have been teaching through uh, the Gospel, and we find ourselves now here in chapter 2, verse 13 through 22. Uh, priorly, we have learned so far 
We have seen John uh, preach and baptize, preparing the way for Christ. We saw Jesus baptized and the Spirit of God descend upon him as the Father approves of Jesus as his Son and confirms him to be his Son before witnesses. We read about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan and defeating him by the Word of God. We read about Jesus calling the disciples, Andrew, Simon, James, and John, to follow him. And he told them he would make them fishers of men. Uh, Jesus then went teaching in the synagogues and casting out demons, uh, and casting a demon out of a man specifically is, uh, revealing that his teaching had authority. We read of the, uh, compassion of Christ towards us as he healed Simon's mother-in-law, as he healed the leprous man. And then when Jesus arrives back to Capernaum, a paralytic man breaks a hole in the ceiling of the house he was teaching in, uh, that Jesus would heal him. And Jesus not only healed the man, but he also uh, confirmed his divinity by forgiving him of his sins. And at this point, the people are going around saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus is gaining quite a crowd and quite a reputation at this point. And we find ourselves here now in our passage. So Mark chapter 2, verse 13, uh, verse 13 and 14 Start like this. We went, he went out beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, I want to start off by making a couple observations about these opening passages as they can kind of be kind of like uh, easy to just kind of skip over and skim over. And, and um, we know it being in Scripture, there's significance to it, it being in this passage. So what can we learn from this? First observation we can make here is that Jesus was about the work of the Father. Now, if you recall, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, we read about Jesus being in the home, and in a home, and a paralytic man breaks through the ceiling to be healed by Jesus. In all this, Jesus took the opportunity not only to heal the man of his physical ailments, but also to prove his divinity by forgiving him of his sins. I'm sure this, uh, with the contribution of healings, teachings, and proving himself to be the Son of God, the crowd was quite stirred. So Jesus moves to the shoreline where a bigger crowd can gather and hear his teaching. It was important to Jesus that people could hear what he had to teach about, not only see the miracles. We also see in verse 14 that Jesus is actively calling people. Here, specifically, he is calling Levi more commonly known as Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. You see, Jesus was not sitting around waiting for well-meaning people to come to him and start following him and do the right thing. No, Jesus was actively seeking out those he would call apostles and disciples. Jesus was not um, complacent, just sitting around waiting for his atoning death to arrive and a new kingdom to be brought about. He was working, bringing bringing it about himself doing as he has always done and working to bring about the glory of God through the redemption of his people by his sacrifice on the cross. Isn't it great news that we serve a God who is working for our salvation and actively going out and seeking his sheep? We serve a living God who is out teaching of himself and calling dead people to life. Those of us who are here this morning who have found Christ, rejoice For Christ has called you out. He is working about our redemption by his gracious mercy. 
Let us also take note here of the call. Follow me. Follow me, Jesus told Matthew, and it says that he rose and followed him. Why did Matthew just follow like that? If someone was walking down the street and passed by you and said, follow me, do you think he would listen? No, probably not. You would probably be like, who are you and what do you want from me? So what is so significant about the call here? What is significant about the call is who is doing the calling. You see, if you are go, if you are, if you or I were to just go walking about telling people to follow us, the responses would be at most unreliable. Most people would probably be like, no thanks, leave me alone. Some people, a few, may follow at a distance just simply out of curiosity. But for the most part, you really would have no idea or control over those who would follow. But see, when Jesus calls, it's different. If you'll remember with me back to Genesis 1-3, this is the one who says, let there be light, and there is light. He is the only one who can truly speak things into existence. When Christ called Matthew, something began to work in Matthew's life that is most commonly explained as irresistible grace. When Christ calls you, it is his grace to you that your heart is stirred towards obedience. He he extends his sanctifying mercy to you so that a curiosity for Christ is planted deep inside of your heart. And from that, when we hear the call of the Lord, calling us by name, we follow. Paul explains this to us in Philippians 3.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is only by God working in you that you will ever even want to Uh, know something about Christ. And it is only by God working in you that you can or will follow Christ. It's by the power of Christ's call that you feel an urge to follow. It is by the power of Christ's call that you will follow. And it is, and it was by the power of Christ's call that Matthew, according to Luke 5, 28, talking about this same text, says, he left everything, rose, and followed him. We must remember this. It always was, always is, and always will be Christ working the redemption of his people. Romans 8.13 explains this, and it says this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He is the predeterminer, he is the caller, he is the justifier, and he is the glorifier. Jesus shows no part, another thing to take note here is Jesus shows no partiality in his call. Let's not forget here that Jesus, that Judas was a tax collector. Someone who had been completely rejected in outcasts, in an outcast from society because of his selfish love of money. Tax collectors were hated by the Jews and the Pharisees. Tax collectors were to be excommunicated from the synagogue. Pharisees used to teach that you were allowed to lie about whatever means possible to keep from paying a tax collector. They were considered traitors to the people of God and sellouts to the Roman Empire who had forsaken the Jewish traditions. For Jesus to call such a person to follow him would have been a direct statement of insult and disregard for the ways and the teachings and philosophies and theologies of the Pharisees. Jesus was making a bold statement here 
And it only gets worse as the Pharisees begin to be brave enough to ask questions, as we will see here in a moment. See, Jesus did not look around and say, you know, okay, let me find the most religious. He was not showing partiality to whom he called. He called whom he called. Verse 15 says, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now we see in Luke 5.29 that Matthew, or Levi still at this point, made a great feast for Jesus in his house. Jesus goes in to recline, and we are told that his company is tax collectors, sinners, and his disciples. Note here that it says he reclined. The way they used to eat dinner together in those days was they would gather around a table and their head would be facing the table and they'd be lying down on their side or stomach and their feet uh, behind them facing away from the table. Feasting together at this time was a, a very personal uh, means of fellowship, a very intimate means of fellowship. And who was Jesus and his disciples reclining with? Sinners and tax collectors. So Jesus and his disciples seem to have this kind of openness and welcome to talk with those and be amongst those whose society labels as sinners, outcasts, or rejects. Now Jesus and his disciples, now Jesus and his disciples would not have been dining with such people to find counsel, but to give it. And there was enough of a welcoming spirit that even those of their society deemed unclean could find welcome and counsel with Christ and his disciples. So I wonder, is that what the socially uh, unclean or cinders find when they gather, when they see our gathering, when they come into our gathering? Not a voice of approval of a life lived in unrepentant sin, but a welcome to come hear the one who came to save us all from our sin. For we are not better than the sinner and tax collector we read about here. And yet Jesus welcomed you in to recline at the table of his fellowship so that you could hear his words and find rest for your soul and peace with God. Is that what the lost find when they walk in here? Do we welcome them to come and recline with us as we too hear the words of our Lord and Savior? Do we see uh, do we see the so do we see past the social stigmas and awkwardness of seeing someone unfamiliar because we are hopeful that they too will come and find peace and saving grace from Christ as we have are we willing to even be an example of love of the love of Christ to them when they arrive here if the answer is yes then praise God for you brother and sister this is a wonderful thing God has placed in your heart for this church I urge you and I encourage you keep keep on if your answer is no or not yet I would also encourage you brothers and sister to uh begin to think this way and to welcome those who you see those who may not know it may be awkward to introduce yourself to someone who walks in these doors on Sunday but welcome them for we can all find fellowship uh with the grace we have found in Christ Verse 16, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? If you look closely here, I think it is interesting how the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples the question, not Jesus directly. 
I'm sure by now that the Pharisees were quite intimidated by Jesus, having urged him, having argued with him on numerous occasions before now. It's hard to argue with someone who counters your arguments against his divinity or against his message by literally healing paralyzed men right in front of you amongst the whole crowd. It's kind of hard to argue with someone like that. You see, Jesus had nothing to hide here. Jesus was who he claimed to be. So it was the duty of the Pharisees to disprove him. The failing to do that, on, and by failing to do that on many occasions, they began a new strategy. Plant doubt in his closest friends. They wanted them to doubt the legitimacy of, Christ, of who Christ was uh, by appealing, again, if we look here, to their own holiness. A holy man of God would never recline with such people. Very a sneaky idea, don't you think? How often, even today, does Satan try to plant seeds of doubt in Christians' minds or the disciples of Christ, especially, especially today, the young ones? Between the destruction caused by the idea of relative truth or the New Age ideas and movements that are deceiving kids to seek higher consciousness and be their own God, it is very interesting how the devil works to plant doubt in the seeds of the disciples of Christ. It is a true saying that if you can't defeat the message, try to defeat the messenger. The Pharisees were trying to get the disciples to doubt Christ. If we can get his followers to doubt him, then who will listen? And if no one listens, we have no problem. I'm sure they were thinking. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, they asked? How could such a one claim to be the Son of God and fellowship with such sinners? They are unholy, they are unclean, liars, thieves, murderers, idolaters. There is a terrible assumption being that the Pharisees are making here. One we are all familiar with and have likewise made ourselves many times, presuming our own righteousness. Verse 17 says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Do you see? Pastor Mark said it well one time. It is not about what the Pharisees lacked here. It is they thought they lacked nothing. Blind by their own self-righteousness, Jesus speaks of this kind of attitude in Revelation 3.17 where he says to the church in Laodicea, For you say, I am rich, I am prospered, I have prospered. And I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It is a false sense of success, a false sense of righteousness, a false sense of goodness. Paul gives us a great explanation of the heart condition and the thought process of the Pharisees in Romans 10, 2 through 4. Paul says this concerning uh, the Jews of the time. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to the righteousness of, to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Keep in mind here, the Pharisees were zealous for the things of God. They had a desire to please God and be honorable people and noble people even in hopes that their honorableness and their nobility would save them and make them right with God. Paul explains they were ignorant 
of the righteousness of God. And failing to see how holy God is, they started making up all kinds of ways that you could be right with God according to a standard of righteousness that started with themselves. Their standard of righteousness started here, not there. It started here, not here. We must all be cautious of this. Self-diagnosis. Looking at ourselves and then others around us to determine from there our spiritual condition. To put it as Pastor Mark also explained to me one time, self-diagnosis always leads to self-righteousness. When we do not look to God's word and see what he has to say about the state of our soul, we are always in danger of doing some good things and thinking that that is good enough for God. So, of course, they did not need a Savior coming preaching forgiveness. Pharisees did not need a preacher preaching forgiveness. They did not desire to be reconciled with God. They assumed they had already earned that by the religious traditions and good works. They expected someone to come to save them from the sinners, to free them from the burden of these sinful people, rid them of the Gentile nations and bring Israel to glory. They were not interested in salvation from sin. They were interested in salvation from sinners, which they failed to realize they were. This was such a deeply rooted thought among Jews. This is such a deeply rooted thought among Jews that Paul is even having to address this again to Jewish Christians in Romans. Uh, In Romans 9, 6 through 8, he says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It was not being born a Jew that saved you. It was about putting their trust in Christ who was to come and redeem them to be children of God and thence confirm them to be children of the promise. The crazy reality of it all is that their Savior, they had no idea their Savior, that person who spoke about in the Old Testament was sitting right in front of them. What the Pharisees failed to see is our problem with God is not just our ability to do good things. It is much deeper than that. We are born into sin. Psalm 51, 5 tells us. Romans 3, 10 through 11, you are all very familiar with this, I'm sure. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. If you believe you sought after God and that's why God saved you, my friend, I'm sorry, you have a very small understanding of God's grace. It is far greater than that. We were all like Matthew, going about our daily business of sin, and Christ came to you and out of his mercy called you out of your sin. This is what the Pharisees failed to recognize, and they asked, so then they asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. How could you ever put your trust in Christ if you feel no need for him? Jesus came to accomplish the work of his father, not man's work. 
Not whatever or however we deem necessary, God should work on our behalf. Jesus came saving for his own glory and for the glory of the Father. So that when it is all done, we will all say glory and honor and praise be given to the Lamb and to the Father. Jesus then puts the nail in the coffin of the argument when he finishes uh, the sentence saying, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. If the Pharisees had any understanding of what Christ at this time, that's uh, of what Christ was saying in this statement, they should have been terrified, realizing that he was talking about them, but they refused to believe it. Also note that he did not say, I came not for the righteous, but for those who are... Uh, diligently seeking me, or I came not for the righteous, but for those who are doing their best to live good, moral lives. No, it is all, it all rests on the call of Christ. Christ calls and we follow. Do you see the great mercy in this? If we are all sinners born into sin, lost in our own self-worship, then every single person Jesus calls to follow him is an infinite display of his eternal love and mercy. What a gracious statement. What a gracious thing that God would call sinners. After seeing all this go down, it is very important that we ask one question. Why? Why do we have this little story? What is is the point of all this? Why is Jesus calling tax collectors? Why would he go against the religious leadership of that time? Why would he dine with sinners and make statements like, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner? Why would Jesus make such a bold statement? Jesus now starts asking questions and giving answers to help us understand. Verse 18 says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why does John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Think about this question again and recognize a common theme here. That self-righteous piety theme is deeply rooted in this question. The question was not, Hey Jesus, John's disciples and Pharisees' disciples fast. Should we be fasting? Your disciples are not. Should we? No. The question is, Hey Jesus, we and the Pharisees fast, but the, your disciples don't. Seems kind of unholy of you, doesn't it? Jesus first answers their question in typical, in typical Jesus fashion by asking another question. Can the wedding guest... Fast while the bridegroom is with them. Then he answers his own question. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus is showing them what they do not want to see. They don't want to believe who is in their presence. This is the Son of God who has come to save us from our sin and reconcile us to God. This is not a day of fasting. This is a day of rejoicing. This is a time of singing for joy and fellowship, not weeping. But Jesus, but just wait. A day is coming when he will return to the Father and the time for fasting will be. And before they can even ask the question, well... When will this day be? When, when, when will fasting continue if we supposedly don't need it now? Jesus begins to give them a parable. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old 
and the worst hair is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst with the, the wine will burst with, uh, the wineskins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You see, Jesus is answering all their questions here in this one parable about what he is doing. How could Jesus be fellowshipping with tax collectors? How could he be sitting and eating with sinners? Why does he not follow the traditions and the law of the Pharisees? Jesus' answer is, Jesus answers this very clearly for us in Revelation 21.5. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. He did not come to add new religious traditions to old ones. He came bringing a new covenant. Let us hear the words of the Lord this morning and see that Jesus did not come to weigh us down with more religious traditions and laws. He came to free us from the bondage of sin, that we have failed to obey the law. We are not saved by Christian traditions. This is only a false hope, a live traditional thinking. The traditions of the Pharisees and the law could never save them. It only left them condemned. Religious piety will never save you. Jesus did not come to add to the law, but to fulfill it. It is so that all who put their trust in him would be saved, not by their righteousness, but by his righteousness. So that those whom he called would be reconciled to God. His people would be born again, new people, a new covenant, a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit for all those who have been reborn and made not better men and women, but new men and women who are not in the world, but are in Christ. What this parable is showing us is that if Jesus sent his spirit to this old way of thinking to a people still in their sin, it would be a conflict. It would never work. People who have the spirit but yet think they are saved by their own righteousness is just a straight contradiction of ideas. Jesus is sending his spirit to a new people, made alive by the power of his blood and sufficient atoning death on the cross. So to the Pharisees' judgments and wonderings, how could Jesus call tax collectors to follow him? Because he's making them new. How does Christ dine with tax collectors and sinners? Because he's making them new. Why didn't his disciples fast? Because Christ, their Redeemer, had come. Praise God, our Redeemer has come. You see, being a disciple of Christ does not have to do with how much you serve or read the word or pray. It has to do with the call of Christ. Because if you are called, he will make you new. You will not desire to attend a church when they have all the activities you like. You will desire the true church when the one, when you know the one whose church it belongs to. You will not desire to read the word when someone says it to you just the right way or the way you want to hear it or you finally find that Bible plan that works for you. You will desire to read the word when you know the one who has written it. You will not worship sincerely when they finally sing that song you always want them to sing. You will worship sincerely when you know the one you worship too. Our faith is not a matter of law. It is a matter of grace. His grace. For he came to make us, he came to make all things new. He came to save sinners and free us from the burden of the law that we could not bear. So to conclude this morning, so I urge you this morning, hear the call of Christ. 
Come, recline at the table of his fellowship, hear the teaching of his word, and believe. But I warn you, count the cost. Do not think that just because you, you find rest for your soul, you will find rest in this earthly life. Second Timothy 3.12 tells us, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Just as much as you can be sure of the promise of salvation, if you put your trust in Christ to save you from your sin, you can trust these words of warning of persecution for a godly life. If this is you this morning and you would like to count the costs and seek reconciliation with God through Christ, I urge you to speak with Pastor Mark or Pastor David or I this morning after the service. Don't wait. Hear the call of Christ. Get up and follow. For those of us this morning who, have, who are in Christ, let us rejoice with gladness and thanksgiving. For Christ has made us a new creation. The old has passed away and now we have been made new. Our hope of salvation is not anchored in our own righteousness, but it is anchored in the righteousness of the one who has called you. So let us go. Let us go out and proclaim the gospel, sharing the good news with those who are around us. For we serve a loving God, a gracious God, and a merciful God, who every day is taking sinners and making them a new creation in Christ. Every day, every day, person by person, God is taking what is old and making it new. Amen. Now, if you would stand with me. If you will uh, put your hands in a receiving position, I have uh, the benediction this uh, morning is also from Revelation 21, 5 through 7. It says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Amen. Go this week and be blessed. You are dismissed.